Christians. Real conversations. Philosophy. Theology. Real life. Where the rubber meets the road. This is the Commuter Christian Podcast. Good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Commuter Christian Podcast. We are back again with Andrew, doing more of this Cold War theology thing. Um, today is going to be slightly different, but still super related. We are looking at Reformation versus Revolution. Really, Luther's style versus everyone else. And uh, what we can <laughs> learn from that today. And... Uh, what things we usually talk about. Take it away, Andrew. Yeah, so, you know, we talk all the time about the... Well, first off, what was the last episode before this one? That way I can make sure I don't repeat myself. So every... uh, The last one before this was the Crusades. Okay. Yeah, so basically, you know, we, we've talked a lot about how already at this point in history, so we're only about a, a thousand years, you know, a millennia away from Christ himself. You know, we're around 15, you know, 14, 1500, so 14, 1500 years of church history is happening and happening. But at this point, we've already talked about how many different fractions and fractures of that faith we've already had. You know, but that it's all been in, for the most part, it's all been pretty good fractures because it was separating out in a way that was relevant to the different parts of the world it was going. So, you know, the African, African churches were thriving because they had the theology of Christ that was now being shared through the way that all of the other history of Africa had been being shared. You've got the same thing going on in India where you've got people that are being, are able to be freed from the caste system because of the fact that the gospel has come. And so they now have their identities in the right spot. All of this sort of thing, you've got the whole thing going on with the, the Eastern Empire or the Eastern Church and Eastern Empire that are breaking up into different cultural sects. All of this is good, even within Catholicism, even though it's it's very political, we at least have community engagement going on in the church. All of this is going okay and all good with the exception that as political power grew within the church, like we talked about the Crusades, the popes were becoming warlords. And the local bishops, the higher-ups, not the local pastors, the local bishops, the cardinals, all these things, were having to find a way to both be a shepherd of the community spiritually, as well as a steward of the community. And so we have to have a financial strain to do it. And so this is where we get the ideas that we've talked about with other parts of the Reformation, as far as indulgences, as far as, you know, things like communal property, state property, even the whole idea of why pastor or why priests were not to marry was all related to this state church marriage. You know, it was not a matter of the the priest is married to God. It was a matter of the priests that were getting married were technically lords in in a feudal system and owned most of the land. And so if they were to get married and die or have some kind of marriage separation, the wife now would inherit the government 
right? And that's not a good thing in a, in a time where it's not very hard. I mean, if you look through history, not very hard to see that assassination is pretty easy at this time and place. So this is yeah. not a good idea. So they ban marriages, all this sort of thing. All of this is going on. And we have really three main characters that arise that start this Reformation period. This is also right around the time that the printing press is being created. This is right around the time that London is becoming its own cultural center and the Anglo-Saxons are becoming a, a power. The Frankish kingdom is really their own kingdom of becoming what we know as France. The Moors have kind of retaken Spain and so now or what is now Spain and Portugal is coming up. Germany has risen out of the out of the Goths and out of and you know the, the different barbarian tribes, right. all this stuff. There's a cultural revolution going on. There's political revolution going on. And the church is trying to keep both their theology and their financial strains intact. Right. And so you have these big projects coming up with the cathedrals and everything, which is really the marriage of the two strains, of both cultural and financial. But they've right. got to have a way to pay for it, which is where the indulgences come in. And the indulgences had been started during the Crusades. Right. You know, to pay for the war effort. <laughs> would go, yeah. If, if you would go fight the war, you would receive a plenary indulgence. Right. And, and so for, and people, now, for, for, for people who don't know what that is, I know it's a term that's thrown around a lot. Everyone has heard it, but I like to explain things. You know that. So... <laughs> So, basically, this point in time, the theology of the church is that the church could forgive sin for Christ. So, which, which I will clarify also, that is not a heretical statement overall. Because we do have support of that in scripture from Jesus himself. The problem, though, was the method in which the church was saying that they could forgive sins and the fact that the church was saying that they got to decide what sins were forgivable and what sins were not. Right, exactly. So anyway, um, well, and that's the thing with most of this. Like, all the takes half scriptural. And, right. And half man-made extension of what the Bible says. <laughs> right. So, you know, that that's why we need the, the, the discernment and the understanding and all of those sorts of things. Well, and again, that goes back into why this is such a big thing for us to actually do this, is that yeah. the even the current cultural trends have some basis of biblical foundation because if they didn't they would not be able to survive right the fact is that they survive because they have potential backing right they have it's just that, that right there's just enough bible to be dangerous uh-huh uh-huh and and that's anyway, what we so that's what we see with the indulgences right and then uh, this time, and still in Catholic dogma to a point, but less so. There's less emphasis. Um, you know, there was this idea. There was this idea of purgatory. It was the immediate afterlife, this place that you would go to work off your unforgiving sins before eventually making it to heaven. And so, one of the ways that the church forgave sins, so to speak. And really just supported itself and its infrastructure and its war efforts and its building projects and all of those things is this idea of indulgence. You could pay for an indulgence, and a given indulgence was worth so was worth so many years out of your sins. Yeah. Right. So you could you could get to heaven faster. It's community service time. 
on parole. Right. right. <laughs> you but, you know, the, if, if you pay this, if you do this penance, you can work it up here instead of in purgatory. And we see this, we see this sort of thing even within Protestantism still today. And, and really, this is part of what Luther really was calling out, is the fact that what this does, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is it provides the idea that your earthly blessing is equal in importance to your heavenly reward. And so if you, as a believer, do not have the funds to support your, your sinful lifestyle in terms of being forgiven, then either that means that you are less than in the eyes of God, and so you are going to have to go and work extra hard to rise to the level of somebody with a higher bank account, or it means that you're going to have to be extra careful to not be in sin. Right. And so it, it's it's a it's a early version of prosperity theology. It's an early version of works theology. It's an early version even of fundamentalism in a lot of ways. Yep. But it was one that was not necessarily seen as a major issue because of the fact that the only people that at this time really had access to be able to see what scripture was actually saying either was benefiting from this system or understood why the system had to be in place or they were ones that were in a class where their financial status didn't was not affected really by any of this. And so it did not make enough of a difference for them to feel the need to call it out if they even felt like it was necessary to. Right. Which again, we can pull a lot of parallels again today out of that, but that's a different part of the discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So anyway, there's all this stuff in the church going on. Um, you know, culminating in even there were basically the church basically had at this point traveling salespeople that were selling indulgences. Uh, and you know, so the the thing with Luther, you know, Luther was never trying to start his own thing. You know, this this idea we have today. A burning it all down, starting over, or you know, you know, exposing the system and building something new. Not is not what he was doing. He just wanted to fix what was broken. And really, that that plays into the the misunderstanding of what Luther was trying to do, as well as the love affair that a lot of people have with the other characters in this story we're going to get to really boils down to why we have such a almost hatred, almost like a heretical hatred of the idea of deconstruction. Right. Because deconstruction is not about burning it all down to build it up. Shout out to uh, Lincoln Park. It's all about a getting back to what the Bible actually says we as believers are supposed to be doing and acting upon. Right. Which is what Luther, which is what Luther was all which about. Which is what Luther, that, right. Says. That's what Reformation actually is about, is reform. Yep. And that's what Luther was about, and that really is what this conversation is about. Cold, the idea of calling out Cold War, Cold War theology is not a burn it all down. It's a look at where, look at what has infiltrated, so that way we can get rid of it and get back to the actual message that we are supposed to be preaching. Yes, but what the 
parties opposed to us having this discussion will say is that in deconstructing this kind of stuff, we are calling for the church to be burned down to the ground so we can build a new one up. And the idea is we're going to build it up in our image. When the reality is that is actually the form of reform that we see from the two other characters that most of the people calling out deconstruction actually fall into their camps. Right. Which is just a uh, side note that we'll get to in a little bit. <laughs> right. But yeah, you know, most, most people know the story of Luther at least somewhat, you know, he puts the 95 theses on the whatever, the church, the, you know, on the church, the idea was, now in his time, this was a thing you could do to have discussion, to right. have debate. You could go into the public square, basically post your demands or post your thesis statement, and be, there would be a council to discuss all the things. But instead, well, certainly... Right. Certain people could do that. Luther could do that because he was high enough up and well-respected enough, both within the church and within the community, to be able to call out higher-ups and demand a debate. Right. Calvin himself could not have done that. He did not have the standing to do that. Zwingli could not do that. He did not have the standing to do that. And again, this is something we can still see today. Some people can go into the public square of online and demand an answer from somebody and get a response. Right. But yet other people are not able to do that. They just immediately get banned and blocked or reported for spam. Yep. Because, and, and this is something where, you know, there's good things and bad things to this idea, is that one, we have people that are actually trained and knowledgeable in these things having the discussions. That's something that's good. That's not a problem. The bad side of this is what Dr. Beth Allison Barr just posted about last night as we're recording this, of the fact that you are not able to get a book deal from a publisher until you have a following sometimes of over 40,000 people that regularly are engaging with you. That's insane. And so you can have people that are qualified and that have ideas and a message for people that will get passed over if they don't have the celebrity status that is needed. And so there's good and bad to this. But the good thing for us is that Luther had this at the time that it was needed. Because Luther going to the door and hammering for a while to put this thing in is going to cause the right kind of commotion to get discussion happening. Right. Good a good discussion that is quote-unquote productive. We can argue how productive it actually was as we go through this, but the idea right. was that it was going to be productive if Luther was the one right. to do it. You know, because after, well, like, after the Reformation happened in Ernst, um, you know, once, once the French reform happened with Calvin and um, once, uh, the Dutch reform thing started happening over in Geneva and uh, all sorts of things the, the Catholic Church actually had to cancel a trend and uh, start right. selling indulgences right and, and that's why we're saying that you can actually argue that some of the reforms that Luther called for actually did happen right but the method in which the council that was trying Luther went about the initial investigation and initial discussion 
was not productive. No. It is what led, it's what led to the difference between Reformation and Revolution. Because what people like Calvin and Zwingli saw is that even somebody with the status of Luther cannot get through to the higher-ups. Right. And Calvin specifically, because of the fact that he was a trained theologian, but he found his calling in the field of law, right, is one that saw the, the, the political side of the Catholic Church as the same force as their theological side. And so right. his ideals as a lawyer for the people was that if even the elites of Luther cannot get through, then nobody can get through. And so we've got to burn it all down and start over. Right. And then, so, what, what, what Calvin did it more politically, Zwingli actually, Zwingli actually tried to fight a war. Right. And uh, Zwingli you know, was... And, and this goes even back to our discussion into Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots. Yeah, yeah. He built up an army to fight back the Holy Roman forces in Switzerland so that, right. uh, so, so that he could set up his own government. Now, he failed, and what happens is that later on, Calvin actually comes in, and he's the magistrate of Geneva, uh, you know, because... They were successful in breaking the hold of the emperor's power over um, Switzerland, right? And and, and and setting up their own and setting up their own government. And, but you know the the thing that is interesting with all of this is that you know we've got three different ideologies behind the same sort of calling. Yeah, the pro. The problem, though, again, is that the way that Calvin went about, the way that Zwingli went about it, both of them can find somewhat of a biblical support for what they were doing. Right. Zwingli probably even more so than Calvin, because Zwingli was looking at this as, my people are being oppressed by a foreign ruler, and so we need to throw off the shackles. You know, the, the theology was really secondary in Zwingli's war, even though we talk about it as theologians, as it was a religious war. Right. Zwingli was much more concerned with the freedom of his people than he was with what they were teaching at the churches. Yeah. But, because of the fact that the timing of everything and the ideologies of the time, we have, again, combined... His, his political aspirations with the theological aspirations of the day. Calvin, on the other hand, was a lawyer that was trying to fight back against the courts, both the theological and state courts, uh, again, for his people. Right. Because he saw what happened to Luther. He saw Luther get excommunicated and Luther eventually just having to straight up leave the church, not because he wanted to, but because the church told him he had to. And then he saw, he saw Zwingli build an army and get killed in battle. Right. Zwingli raises up an army to, to defend his people and he gets shut down. And so now it's like, well, they both went about it the wrong way. Luther didn't go far enough. Zwingli went too far. <laughs> right. And so now I'm going to go back and fight against the courts. And we have good things that can come out of this. You know, he is the first one to really sit down and chart out a system, the, systematic theology for us. He's the one that's able to put terms to things. He's the one that's able to, to as a lawyer, he is able to connect dots for people and right. do so in a way that both is able to be identified by the academics and by the common people. He's well, yeah. able to bridge the gap. 
But the problem was kids are fantastic. And if right. our modern if our modern day so called Calvinists would just be Calvin, like most of this would just go away. Well, I don't even know that that's the case though. Because this is the other problem that we see with Calvin is that Calvin looked at this style of reform not as reform, but almost in a way of renewal. Right. We are going to go back and not just, re we're not going to reform the Catholic Church. And we need to completely destroy the enemy. Very much the same language we see with Zwingli, but just with legal code instead of weapons. Right. With a pen instead of a sword. And what this sets up is for Calvin, places where his theology was off could not be, in the same way that he was arguing what was going on within Catholicism, that you couldn't you could not question it. You could not bring up a, you, you know, you could not go and say what you are teaching is wrong. You could not do that because look at what happened to Luther. He was one of them and he was thrown off. You can't say, you can't challenge them. The same thing happens with Calvin himself to where you cannot question him because if yeah. you are, you are supporting the Catholic Church. Right. There's no, there is no net of accountability for him. Right. Only that. And what, you know, there's, that, there, there's no room for discourse or nuance, which is exactly what we see right now. You know, and that is really, that's why you are an apostate Marxist agent of Satan. Right. Even though I come from a reformed theology background. And that most of my theology would be considered reform. Reformed Christians tell me that I do not understand reformed theology because of the fact that I believe that being should be applied in today's world. Which is the exact thing that Calvin was doing. And it's the exact thing that Luther was doing. But I also fully believe that the church does not need, need to be burned down, and it also does not need to be held up as an idol. But instead, it needs to be treated the way that we see in Scripture as a body. And if the right. body has sickness within it, we need to treat the sickness so that the body can be healthy and actually be able to be per able to perform effectively. Yes. Which is what Luther's call was. Yeah, Luther's was call was there was this there's a sickness in the body. There's yeah. ninety-five there are ninety-five symptoms that we have here that are all pretty much wrapped up in the same ideal ideological idolatry that comes about when we become a political party first instead of a theological movement within the world. Yep, and we talked about that last week, is you can't right. really be, you can't be the church and the government. It's a conflict right. of interest. And, and this is really where, when we get into the whole argument of Christian nationalism, theonomy, theocracy, here in the United States, or even the lesser recognized form of theonomy and theocracy of you must vote this way to be considered a Christian. Right. Is it's an ideological idol of conservatism. Uh -huh. There's no theological argument to be able to be made that if you vote this way, then you have proven your faith. Because all you are doing now is switching out the indulgences for votes. Yep. If you vote, you get out of hell. 
if you don't vote, now you have to prove your worth as a Christian in another form. Right. It's the yeah. same thing on repeat. We just change what it is that we are substituting Christ out for. Yep. That'll preach. <laughs> but it won't preach. And that's the problem. It won't be preached. Because what happens when we preach this? Either we are not reformed enough, get out of our pulpits. You are progressive, get out of our pulpits. You're Marxist, get out of our pulpits. Or it's the opposite of exactly your pre. You've got to vote this way to be that way. And when we say, no, that's not right either, now you're a Bible thumper. Get out of our pulpits. Yep. It can't be preached because we've already married the ideologies together. Right. Yep. Oh, I get that, man. You know, I, you, <laughs> we live this thing. You know, for people watching this that maybe don't follow us on Twitter, you know, we live this thing. We're called, you know, we're called liberal one second, and we're called Bible thumpers the next. And we're just trying to actually live out this thing in the most accurate way possible. Uh, you know, we're trying to remove... And, and, you know, this is really where, when we talk... Go ahead. As you say, you know, this is really where, when we get into this difference between reform and revolution sort of thing, that even you and I at times go toe-to-toe. -to -toe, right. Is that if we are talking about reform, then we're really talking about, you know, what we talk about in Misfits, what we talk about with CSRM, of we're really just, we're at the level one, level two, level three, three-tier paradigm. Of we're, wow. we're talking theology and philosophy to realize how we apply it. Yeah. That is what reform looks like. But what we end up with, what we end up with well, when we, when we, <laughs> yeah. What we end up with when we talk this whole idea of revolution instead of reformation is this idea that we have to have the right jersey on in order to either prove our allegiance, we claim our, it's prove our allegiance to Christ or prove our allegiance to scripture, when in reality we're proving our allegiance half the time it's to one of these guys we're talking about. We have to prove our allegiance to Calvin. And so we cannot allow for any kind of nuance or any kind of theological discussion or correction on secondary issues because, because Calvin put together the systematic theology for us. Everything now, with if we are true Calvinists, our primary salvation issues because everything has that label well everything's connected and everything is connected and so now we get into slippery slope fallacies that are not even slippery slopes or we get into right. straw mans that are actually not straw mans they're actually just straight theological facts but they're straw mans if our philosophy second-tier philosophy is more built into the label that we have identified our theology with instead of being built into a Christocentric understanding of Scripture. Right. Because if our label is Christ, then we can have disagreements among each other. This was the episode that we just released this morning on Misfits is we can have disagreement as believers and even have disagreements that end in what seem to be splits of relationships 
and it still be healthy and it actually be godly. Right. Because it's not claiming that because you hold this label that you are no longer a believer. It's because you hold this label, you and I are not going to be able to work effectively together. And so we need to both go to the place that we can effectively minister to the same gospel that both of us hold on to for our salvation. Right. That is what reform looks like. Right. Revolution is we have to put not only draw the line in the sand, we have to set our flag in the sand with it. And if anybody comes and tries to touch our flag, or unfortunately what we also see is if anybody tries to offend our flag, and now we're talking not just a reformed flag, we're also talking about a political flag. Right. Then the American flag. If, if they won't bow to the flag, they must be cast out. Because it's not about reform in the body and healing in the body and reconciliation in the body. It's about the theological high horse that gives me the sense of accomplishment that I feel like I have to have to prove myself approved. You know, the, the, the problem we get into with this stuff is, again, Scripture says to study ourselves approved. Yep. That's straight out of Scripture. But what he's yep. saying there is not to study yourself approved for entrance into heaven. It's to study yourself approved so that you can go out and share the same message with the world that does not understand it. Right. It's about discipleship, not domination. And then even that, even in that, even in, even in that language, you know, you would, I mean, it's not unfortunate, but you would get, you would get dominionists that would agree with what you just said. Oh, 100%. That because said, again, that it's, it fits. It's discipleship, it, not dominion. Eh. Right. <laughs> But then that goes into the bigger question of are we talking about reform or are we talking about revolution? Right. Are we talking because about dominionists our- you know dominionists are about domination. It's in their name. Right. And are so they can claim about- it's discipleship all they want. But what they want is they want disciples of dominion, not disciples of Christ who already has dominion and already has victory and already commands an army that does not need a bunch of guys with beards fighting for it. Right? <laughs> I mean, that that really is what it comes down to. Is beard where does <laughs> you know, where does our trust and our faith actually lie? Is it in a world, worldly meaning in the world structure, or is it in a structure that is not even able to be comprehended this side of heaven? Because if it's in this world structure, then of course we have to have power structures, and of course we've got to maintain those power structures. Because if we don't maintain those power structures, we have anarchy. And everybody runs around and does what they want, and we have what we see in the book of Judges of there were no kings, and so everybody did as they saw fit. Yep. And so if our faith is actually in earthly Jesus, and the earthly white Jesus that dominates and that spreads the gospel through colonialism, then it makes sense for us to be upset when people talk about setting the captives free as a method of evangelism and as a call of the gospel. Because it looks like we're out here trying to destroy their power structures. And we want anarchy. But the reality is we're out here trying to destroy their power structures so that we can actually get to the true King, Jesus. That does not need... 
manly men to stand up and defend him. What he needs is manly men that are going to train up their children in the way they should go. And I'm talking spiritual children, not just biological. Right. <coughs> yeah, you know, that's another big focus of that camp, too. Not that they don't count. Um, you know, Christians, Christians having Christian children, and, um, you know, that sort of thing. And, and you know, there, there is a, there is an interest, you know what, that's a different conversation for another day. But, but it's not at the same time, and that, that's okay. the thing that's interesting with that's all the, of this, is that it's at the same know, time it's not, because what we saw with Calvin was that Calvin did not see a difference between his work as a lawyer in terms of laws and structures and there needing to be systems in place to protect uh -huh. and his theology. They looked identical because of the fact that he was both a trained theologian and a trained lawyer. They fit together. And that was not necessarily a problem. It became a problem when he no longer could see where the dividing line between them actually was at. And that's the issue that we have when we have these conversations about parenting and discipleship. Is that parenting and discipleship are not separate. They are the same sort of thing for Christian parents. Yep. But the problem comes in when we lose the line between the two to where discipleship happens outside of the home as well. Uh, or, or does it? Or, or does it, rather? You know, they, there are many in that, you know, that side of things. That are you there? Think, yeah, I'm here. There uh, you are. Right, or... Right, or or rather, or rather, discipleship outside of the family doesn't happen because of this because of this confusion. Right, you know, through 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 you know many many of the more dominionist type circles um, are you know they're also um, you know their chief way of growing the kingdom is by having children. Right. And discipling and discipling their family and we don't have as um, other than uh, you know other than in political legal ways we don't have this this outpouring of the gospel out into the communities other than, other than through theonomy other than trying to make well, and that's you know, where you know that that's where the whole thing you know I don't know if this part got cut out when we lost it, so I'll say it now. You know, this is part of where the whole thing with what we see with Calvin happens, is when that line got lost, then suddenly earthly rule and spiritual rule were mixed together again. The very, you know, it's the whole, the whole Batman, or, you know, Christopher Nolan, Batman thing of, you know, do we die a hero or do we live long enough to see ourselves become the villain? It's the same thing when we talk about this, even, you know, the parenting discussion. You raising your kids as Christians is great and honorable and is something we are mandated to do. But Paul very clearly talks about the fact that your spiritual descendants are more important than the heirs that you leave physically. Mm -hmm. Because we are not a part of this world. We are part of the kingdom to come. Right. And so when that line gets blurred to where suddenly now my earthly duty is to leave a legacy of spiritual descendants that also happen to have grown up in my home and that share my last name. And so now half of the church has my last name. And because I raised up such a big capitalist error for our inheritance for my children that got donated to the church, now suddenly the pews all have donated by my name on it. Now I have proved myself a true Christian. And that is the opposite of what we are called to do. 
because that is where our salvation hinges upon the earthly rec the recognition that we have on earth and this plays into even the persecution complex i know that i'm a christian because people disagree with me on these things and because everything is a salvation issue that means that everybody that disagrees with me is them and they are of the father the devil and spreading lies and they are out to persecute me and because i persecuted i'm blessed and now i've proven the fact that i am a true christian when in reality what you have proven is that nobody likes you because you're a jerk it has nothing to do with your faith and everything to do with the fact that you have wrapped up your identity not in christ and in loving god and loving neighbor but in everything to do with loving these loving the scriptures and being able to prove you love it by applying it in places it does not even apply and literally you know literally that just gets us back to the fundamental anti-intellectualism it gets us back right. to the influence of dispensational literal hermeneutics we need to just read the Bible, take it at its word, at face value, and who needs context? Well, it's, it's all built on the same thing. The, the view is that either the world is evil and unredeemable and must be revolutionized, uh -huh. or the view is that the church itself the theology has gone apostate, and so it must be burnt down and revolutionized. You know, but there is no room for any kind of a reform or a rebuilding or patchwork because wow. the, the, the ideology that it's built on does not allow for that. You know, this is, this is one problem with the idea of eternal security. Even though I believe in eternal security, the problem with eternal security is that that means that anybody that has ever been baptized can't lose their salvation. Which means wow. that if they are a believer and they now are going out and doing all these awful things, then we have to reconcile that in some way. So either... I don't think that's how it works, but that's an entirely different episode. Right. But I'm saying that, that this, this argument, I saw this argument earlier today, is oh, that right. you, or not today, this was two days ago. The argument was, there was somebody that was arguing that this person was not truly a non-believer because they had said they grew up Reformed Baptist and left the church in 2020 when they saw the hypocrisy going on lots of people right and they said that they tried to have a conversation about it and that they were told that you can't have that conversation that that conversation is a, a doubt planted by the devil so you can't have that conversation and so he's now arguing with somebody he's arguing with somebody and this this other person that's a Christian says, well, I believe that you actually are still a believer because I believe in eternal security. And so that means that you need to just get back to the basics of the gospel. And so I have to treat you like you are a Christian and rebuke you. And I have to call you out as that because you have gone apostate as a believer. And so the goal is not reform. The goal is to rebuild you into the Christian that I believe you're supposed to look like. When in reality, the reason this guy left is because he was being told that he was not a Christian because he did not look the way that this person wanted him to look. And this is the same thing we see. You know, This is why abusive pastors get protected by their church members. Look at how great this guy's ministry has been. There's no possible way that he could have been a 
a false prophet, because if that's the case, then everybody that came to faith under him didn't truly become a Christian. Or because he, they were led by somebody that was false. And so now... Right, and so it's... And so now... And that is the key to what, what the problem is when we get so attached to labeling ourselves theologically. Yep. Is that all of these different systematic theologies and theological systems were created by a person. Mm-hmm. And if, and the, this is the other thing that cracks me up, is that the people that claim that Calvinism is inspired by God are also the ones that claim that there are no modern-day prophets. <laughs> so Calvin is inspired and infallible, even though he's a man, but somebody that says, well, look, here's a problem with Calvinism, can't because he there are no modern-day teachers that have the same authority as the Reformers, because the Reformers are looked at as the same way as the Apostles. And our faith now becomes attached to a theological understanding of a guy that was operating in his culture, what, 500 years ago, instead of looking at scripture that we know is inspired and that we know is living and active, and even though it was also written by a man, and written in a culture 2,000 years ago, we know that it is still true and applicable because of the fact that the Spirit is still showing us how to take this stuff and apply it in the world around us. Because it's not about the person that wrote it, it's about the person that inspired it. That is how we do this sort of thing in keeping things Christocentric, is that I'm able to sit here and tell you that the same problems that we see come up with Reformed Calvinists, we see in Arminians. Because within Arminianism, it's still a reliance in a lot of ways on people and the power of an individual person. It's just backwards from the way that Calvin talks about it. Both of these things have good things in them that we can find in Scripture, but neither of them are able to fully encapsulate who God is and what God would have us do and how God works, because the mystery of godliness is great. We cannot comprehend this stuff. And anybody that claims they can comprehend theology 100% of the time is lying to you. Right. It's impossible to do. Because the mystery of godliness is great. You know, Paul talks that in, in Timothy. He also talks about the idea of, you know, we are looking into a glass darkly. We cannot see this clearly. We have bits and pieces and we can make it out and through prayer and through the studying of the scriptures and through the conviction and realization of what the Holy Spirit brings on us and through the influence of like-minded believers around us that are able to guide us and mold us and disciple us and to keep us accountable. We're able to start getting glimpses of what it is that is actually being laid out. And this is the, the most clear way to see this is what Jesus shows us in the Gospels compared to what we see in the prophets in the Old Testament. You know, what we see in the Old Testament prophets is they are trying to show people that you are completely misunderstanding who God is because you have completely misunderstood the law. You know, right. This is the whole thing. I, I just put out a thread on Micah 6 
a couple days ago dealing with this very thing. Yep. Micah chapter 6 is a courtroom setting. God has selected Micah to be the prosecuting attorney for him in the court of law, which you would think Calvin would be all for. You know, in the court of law, he is charging the people of Israel with unfaithfulness. And he gives them a, a plea bargain of, he, he says, he's already told you what is good. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. I'm will, God's saying, I'm willing to throw out the sacrifice system. I'm willing to throw out, throw out the 500 and some laws that are there. I'm willing to forget all of that. If you will do these three things and do them consistently. And then when Jesus comes, he says the exact same thing. Because he says, all of the law and the prophets are wrapped up in two things. Love God and love your neighbor. If you do those two things, then you will have upheld the entire law. Why? Because loving your neighbor is to love mercy and to do justice. And right. to love God is to walk humbly with him. Right. Like we don't we don't have to go and try and dissect everything the way that we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots do at that time if we would allow ourselves to be fully invested into what Jesus has done for us and what he is wanting to do for the world around him and around us. We don't have to have these revolutionary labels to describe our theology if we actually are going to label ourselves as disciples of Jesus. Right. Because Jesus, the labels that were thrown on him were either completely insufficient to describe who he was, or they were done so in a way to try and discredit him. Right. Well, you know, you know other, other than when other, Peter finally, you know, other than when Peter finally says, you are the, the Christ, the son of the living God. Right. That's the label that describes him. Right. applied to himself, which were, so, right. You know, the, the son of God, the son of man, he uses these various labels um, to describe himself. Those are five. Um, you know, from the inside, yeah, you know, he was he was labeled a prophet or... Well, you know, th this is one of the fun things when you, if you analyze uh, the, the woman at the well, yep. and you analyze the blind man in John chapter 9, uh -huh. is that we actually watch both the woman and the blind man go through the same process of eliminating the different titles that had been associated with Jesus by having an encounter, with, a true encounter with him. The woman thinks he's a rabbi and then realizes, nope, this guy's definitely a prophet, and then in the end realizes, no, this is the guy I've been waiting on. This is the Messiah. With the blind man, we see him go from just a just some random guy in the street to he's a teacher to he's more than a teacher, he's a rabbi, to he's a prophet that can heal me, to, you know what? No, this is God. I am going to go worship him. When the you know the last time that the the Pharisees asked the man who who it is that healed him. He says, why? Do you want to come worship him with me? This is before anything else had been revealed to the man just by being cross-examined and walking through this encounter. He comes to a realization that this is not just some man. This is God himself. And that is what a reform actually looks like. A reform comes from a renewing of our mind through the Holy Spirit and an encounter with the Messiah. A true encounter with the Messiah brings about reformation instead of revolution.
you know, there's 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 so much meat on this bone, uh, you know, which is why, uh, you know, we did another episode on this about a month ago now, and, and that'll air in the midst of this somewhere too. Um, you know, that is specifically about bad takes on this. Yeah, stuff. <laughs> and there's a lot of them. And, uh, and there's a lot of them. And then, that, you know, even even getting into next week's topic, you know, we're going to look more at the English side of this. We're going to look at Anglicanism and then uh, Presbyterians and just the war that happened there. Oh, you're not going <laughs> to Protestant. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the Congregationalists, a.k.a. the Puritans, uh, you know, they were under fire because they refused to be Anglican. And uh, just all this. More. And we're going to get into all of that stuff next week because there's, there's, there's a lot there. Um, that's its own episode. But, you know... This just goes and it goes and it goes, which is why you, that's why we're doing this on camera. That's why we're unpacking this for people um, because when you're not aware of history, history repeats itself. So uh, yeah, let's be wind down for today, Andrew. Anything to close with? Not that I haven't already typed out on Twitter over the past 10 days. So, I want you watcher of the YouTube, listener of the podcast, uh, however it is you consume this content. Um, you know, this is, this is something I've been explaining in this way for the past couple weeks because this topic is coming more to the forefront. On the one side, people are becoming more aware of it. It's on the other side, the people who are perpetrating it are really just starting to own it and be out in the open with it and not even try and hide it anymore. So, do you do you know when scripture ends the Constitution begins? Do you? That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> do, do you? Make the Bill of Rights like it is written in red letters. Do you first yourself, what is my duty as an American, or do you ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Well, there's two questions you need to ask before you ask those. And that's, have you actually read your Bible? And have you actually read the Constitution? Because the other thing that comes up with this conversation that I see a lot is people commenting on these things that either do not know what the Constitution actually says, or that doesn't know what the Bible says, or both. Right. So that's the first question, and then you get to the other ones. <laughs> right. Right. Except for the last one, I think that we all need to take a good long look at ourselves and ask us that last one. You know, it's our first response to a situation to ask, well, what is my duty as an American? What are the rights in this situation? Or is it that's what would Jesus do? You know, which, which kingdom are you allowing to be your identity? And that's where I'm going to end it. Which kingdom are you allowing to be your identity?
So, as per usual, you can check out Andrew's stuff in the links below for more information on Cold War theology and just to, uh, you know, to follow Misfits, which is his show. Um, you know, there's the Patreon and the PayPal links and all that stuff in the description. You can also support me uh, by um, supporting the Reconstructed Faith Anchor page. I've set up uh, monetization there. Um, you know, like and subscribe on YouTube. Leave reviews on the podcast so that the algorithm will know I exist. And um, you go do all those things for Andrew as well. It you believe the things that we're saying here. If you see the problem, we need to spread the word. We need to get the education out there. And we cannot do that without your help. Thanks for listening.